Our scripture reading tonight is from the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, and it's one verse, one short but fairly profound verse, John chapter 4, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 24, our Lord and Savior declares, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the word of God. It is infallible and inspired and inerrant, authoritative and eternal. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We thank you for revealing your will to us in your word. May we receive your word tonight read and rightly preached as the word of God. May we submit to it. May your Holy Spirit illuminate it and apply it to our hearts. And Father, we ask that your spirit would help us to be active listeners of your word. I pray for myself as well, Lord, that your spirit would enable me to be a faithful mouthpiece bringing your word to your people this evening. I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. On Sunday evenings, we've been doing a little, uh, something a little different than we normally do on Sunday mornings. If you worship with us on Sunday mornings, you know it's our practice to preach through entire books of the Bible, generally. It's not always the case. Sometimes we, sometimes we will do topical sermons. But the overall practice is to preach through entire books of the Bible. Our Sunday evening service is a little different uh, since we only meet once a month. Uh, We have to approach things a little differently. And so we are uh, attempting this historic practice of catechetical preaching. Catechetical preaching is uh, still preaching on the scriptures, but uh, we are allowing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, in this case, to sort of choose the sermon topics for us. And so you'll see in the worship guide, The sermon, what is God? You'll see the scripture reading, John chapter 4, verse 24. And then you'll see question and answer number 4 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this is a good reminder. I haven't encouraged you to do this yet, but I encourage you as we do this practice once a month to spend time each month memorizing these questions and answers from the Shorter Catechism. Our church, our denomination happens to believe that the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a faithful summary of what the Bible teaches. And uh, the practice of memorizing catechisms has woefully fallen out of popularity in the Church of Jesus Christ over the last 100, 200 years or so. And I have to say that that has probably led to an increase in ignorance among God's people. Ignorance on what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. And so uh, you have an entire month between services to memorize these catechism questions. I encourage you to be doing that. The question, as I said, that we are looking at tonight is simple. What is God? What is God? Now, the last time we were together, we considered the question, what do the scriptures principally teach? What is the Bible all about? Now notice that question that we looked at last time does not say who are the scriptures all about, but rather what is the Bible all about? There's a difference there, right? If the question is who is the Bible all about, then we would have to say Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the center of all of God's revelation to his people. Instead, the, the, the question is, what is the Bible all about? What do the scriptures principally teach? And we learned last month that the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. In other words, in the Bible, we find out who God is and we find out what exactly he wants from us. And you may remember me saying last month that that question and answer, the idea that the Bible principally teaches us what we are to believe about God and what God requires from us, that question and answer will sort of give shape to the rest of our Sunday evening services as we look uh, at the following, the questions that fo follow out of that. That question and answer, and the Bible teaches us who God is and what he requires of us, is really the form of the rest of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And so we're going to be exploring in the weeks, months, maybe even years ahead, uh, who God is and who he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And we're going to be studying and learning and seeing what the Bible says God requires of his created beings, us, you and me, mankind. And so tonight, I think we start with what is the most basic of questions. What is God? Again, let me point out, the question is not who is God. The question is what is God? Now, the question of who is God is going to be fleshed out over, over as I said, several questions. And the, the next time we're together on a Sunday evening, we're going to be looking at God as the Trinity and all of these things. But tonight, what is God? What is God? Might be a strange question. I don't think many of us sit around and ponder what God is. We may think about who God is, but what is God? It's a question that Jesus Christ himself answers for us in John chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus plainly says, God is spirit. God is spirit. And we're going to talk a little later on in this sermon about the context in which Jesus makes that statement. And we're going to talk about what the implications are to us as God's people, especially as it concerns the worship of God. But for now, I want us to consider what it means that Je when Jesus says, God is spirit. The first question we might ask is, what is a spirit? What does that word spirit mean anyway? When the Bible speaks of spirits, or spirit, or your spirit, what is it talking about? That's a tricky question to answer, believe it or not, because the word spirit, both in the Greek and in Hebrew, has a broad range of meanings. It can refer to anything from breath or wind to power. It can refer to feelings or emotions. It can refer to a person's will. But as it pertains to personal spirits, meaning spirits which have being, spirits which have personhood, which matters because God does indeed have being, God does indeed have essence, God is indeed personal. What the word spirit means, especially in the New Testament, what it refers to is to a supernatural, non-material being. 
When the Bible speaks of a personal spirit, it is referring to a supernatural, non-material being. Not made up of flesh and blood, in other words. So what is God? According to Jesus Christ, God is spirit. A supernatural, non-material being. Our children's catechism says it like this. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Now, beloved, the next question, now that we have some grasp of what a spirit is, the next question we might ask is, if God is spirit, as Jesus says he is, and spirits are referring to a supernatural, non-material being, we should ask, what kind of spirit is God? After all, we know there are different kinds of spirits, right? Angels are spiritual beings. They are, in a sense, spirits. You and I are human souls, are spirits. And understand, by the way, your soul and your spirit, they are the same thing. Some folks have tried to argue for, uh, they, they've tried to argue, for example, that a human being is triune, meaning we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. First off, as we'll hear next month, that is not the doctrine of the Trinity. That is not what it means to be triune. The Trinity is one God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons are fully God in and of themselves. They are equal in power, equal in glory, equal in their substance. They are not three different parts of God. That's a heresy. It's a heresy called partialism. And it needs to be rejected by Christians. So even if a human being is made up of three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit, we are not triune in our nature. When the Bible speaks of, human, of the human soul, the human spirit, even when it speaks about the heart or the mind, it is speaking of the same thing. It's speaking of the central spiritual essence of the human being. It's speaking about the core of who we are. And so we know, again, that there are different kinds of spirits. Angels, our own spirits, and so on. And we ask, again, what kind of spirit is God? How does he differ from other spiritual beings? Well, let's begin with the angels. How is God, as spirit, different from these supernatural spiritual beings that we call angels? First, we have to understand, angels are created beings. We know that from a variety of texts within the scriptures, but I would take us tonight to Nehemiah 9, verse 6. That's a verse we sometimes use for our call to worship on Sunday mornings. Nehemiah 9, verse 6. Nehemiah 9, 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. Angels are the host of heaven, at least part of the host of heaven. They were created. That's what Nehemiah 9 says. The Lord made the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. Angels were created by God. They were created for the glory of God. But God is not created. God is a, 
is an eternal spirit. He has no beginning. He has no end. He was not made. The prophet Isaiah declares, Isaiah 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Nothing before God. Nothing before God. Jesus Himself declares in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. No beginning, no end. Angels are created beings. They have a beginning. And the one who created them can also destroy them. God, on the other hand, has no beginning. He has no end. And he is impassable. That means no harm can be done to him. He cannot be destroyed. He can't be created. He can't be made. He can't be destroyed. And he himself is the source of everything that exists. So that's the first difference between angels and God. Angels are created. God is eternal. We also know from the scriptures that angels are finite. Similar to being created, similar to having a beginning and an end. But we can expand this idea that angels are finite and say they have limitations. Not only do they have a beginning, not only do they have an end, but they are also limited in their being, meaning they are confined spirits. They are not omnipresent. They aren't everywhere at once. They're not even two places at one time. The Bible never attributes omnipresence, omnipresence rather, to any created being, including angels. God, however, is infinite. Not only does he not have a beginning nor an end, not only is he impassable and unchangeable in his being, he is also not confined. He is, as Thomas Watson says, an immense spirit at all places at once. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10 declares, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is the immense, infinite Spirit, not confined, not limited at all places, all at once. We see how God, as Spirit, is quite unlike the angels. He, unlike them, is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Now, likewise, the same is true for human spirits, the human soul. God is different from the human spirit. Now, we should probably note, first off, that human spirits are different from the spiritual beings we call angels. 
Our spirits and angels are completely unrelated. I know I have said this before, but it is such a common thought in our society today. Humans do not turn into angels when they die. Human spirits are not your guardian angels who watch over you. None of that is true. It is completely foreign to Christianity. Human spirits remain human spirits. When a Christian dies, his soul, his spirit, passes from this life immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ as a glorified human spirit. And in heaven, that soul is both at rest and is fully, completely consumed and occupied with the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Again, I know it's a popular idea, beloved, to believe that your loved ones are watching over you from heaven, protecting you, being your guardian angels, but it is not a Christian thought. It's not in the Bible. And I think it really cheapens the reality of what a Christian who dies in the Lord is experiencing in heaven right now as they see Jesus without the veil of sin between them. So understand, the human soul and angels are not the same spiritual beings. They are two separate spiritual entities. One does not turn into another. But with that said, the differences between God and the human soul, the human spirit, are the same differences between God and the angels. Like the angels, human souls are created. They have a beginning and they can be brought to an end if their Creator so desires. The human soul, beloved, is not eternal. Now, we can be given everlasting life, but it is not eternal. We have a beginning. Furthermore, the human soul, just like the angel, is a confined spirit. It is finite. It is limited. Our souls are not omnipresent. I hope you know that. They can't be in more than one place at a time. And so God, as spirit, apart from being immaterial, God is as spirit overall. He is above all. And he is unlike any and all other spiritual beings. God is a spirit who is infinite, an unconfined spirit, an unchangeable spirit, an impassable, immutable spirit, a spirit without parts or passions, a spirit who is the same yesterday, today, forever, a spirit who is not swayed by external circumstances, a spirit who cannot be manipulated, a spirit who uh, will not be forced into doing anything apart from His holy will. He is a spirit who is the source of everything that exists, things in heaven, and things on earth. That is what God is. God is spirit. And now that we have established, I think we've established what Jesus means when he says that God is spirit, I do want us to turn our attention now to the context of our text tonight, John chapter 4, verse 24. And I want us to understand why Jesus says what he says here. Why Jesus says that God is spirit and goes on to say those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
John chapter 4, as I said, tells of Jesus at the well having a dialogue with a Samaritan woman. If you're unfamiliar with that exchange, I encourage you later to go and read John chapter, chapter 4. You can get the whole picture of this exchange. But in this dialogue, Jesus and this woman, they engage in a little bit of a theological debate around the topic of worship. Uh, some of us like theological debate. I would encourage you not to do it with the Lord. Uh, but this woman was debating uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know anything about the Jews and the Samaritans, you know how this might be very, uh, a very contentious debate. The Jews rightly believed, they rightly believed, that in the Old Testament, God ordained for the corporate gathered worship of his people to happen in the holy city of Jerusalem, in the tabernacle or in the temple. That is where God ordained for his people to gather, to offer sacrifices, to have the priests serve as mediators between them and God. The Samaritans, however, believed that proper worship occurred on Mount Gerizim. And this was not a small difference, beloved. This is not like, uh, you know, we believe we, we should baptize babies and other brothers and sisters would say no. Or this is not like, you know, we might have some different opinions on how many psalms we should sing on a Sunday morning and somebody else says, no, you need to sing more uh, spiritual songs. This is not a little difference. There's a long history of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that went back centuries to the division of the nation of Israel. The Samaritans were the descendants of the Israelites who remained in the northern kingdom after the Assyrians conquered it. Those remaining Israelites began to intermarry with the Assyrians. They then perverted the worship of God, and they would refuse to go to Jerusalem, which was located in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so they set up their own temple, their own place of worship on a mountain God did not ordain. And over the centuries, they saw themselves, again wrongly, as carrying on the true religion of Israel. And so here is Jesus, John chapter 4, at a Samaritan well, engaging with a Samaritan woman, discussing the theology of worship. And in that discussion, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. That's the broader context of our verse tonight. And what I want to do, beloved, with the rest of our time together this evening is discuss what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Because it should not be lost in us. It might seem like that's getting off topic a little bit. But listen, Jesus is the one who unites the reality that God is spirit with worship. Jesus is the one who unites the theology of what God is with 
worship. And that's not an accident. Think of the truths we've already heard this evening about God, about His eternality, about His infinite nature, His impassibility, His immutability, His glory, and His splendor, His very essence. Would you hear those truths, beloved, when you grow in your knowledge and understanding of God? It should produce doxology. It should produce worship. It should produce praise and adoration in your heart. God is spirit. And we should worship Him because of it. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. The spirit, the greatest spirit, God, demands worship that is fitting for what He is. He demands worship that is spiritual and true. This is the connection Jesus makes. This is the application, if you will, of the truth that God is spirit. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Well, I'm going to offer three things. And there are more than three things. There are more than three things about what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. But I'm going to offer three things for us to consider tonight. And we'll go through these very quickly. So if you're thinking you're just now getting to your three sermon points. No, we'll, we'll get through this quickly. First, it means that worship is to be genuine and sincere. I mentioned earlier how the word spirit has a wide range of meanings and how in the human person, the word spirit, soul, heart, mind, they're all getting at the same thing. They're all pointing us to the center of who we are, not our physical hearts, but rather the core of our personhood. The seat of our emotional selves, as some people have put it. And so what that means then is that biblical worship, worship that is done in spirit, beloved, is heartfelt worship. It's what some might call zealous worship. It's not cold. It's not dead worship that merely goes through the motions. In other words, it engages It involves our passions. Jesus says worship of God must be done in spirit. But Jesus does not just call us to worship God in spirit, does he? This is the second thing it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. He tells us we are to worship him in truth. Zealous worship, beloved, this is the point. Zealous worship is not enough. In fact, zeal without knowledge, zeal without being tied to the truth, is utterly deadly. It leads to all forms of idolatry. The elevation of emotions, emotionalism. It it leads to us seeking, many times seeking our own glory. Because we feel we need to have worship be a certain way to stir our emotions. What is that? That is pandering to our preferences. That's not letting truth drive our emotions. That's letting something exterior drive our emotions. And so we end up seeking our own glory instead of God's glory. The point of this, beloved, is that God cares. He cares about more than just your heart in worship. He also cares that He is worshipped 
according to the precepts of his word, which is the standard for truth. You see, beloved, what we do in worship actually matters to God. It matters to him just as much as how we feel in worship. Worshiping according to the word, according to the truth, matters. Doing, saying, singing the right things, it all matters. They are important. We are not free to worship God however we want, so long as our worship is sincere and from the heart. You understand people in the Old Testament, they died for worshiping God however they want. Read of Aaron's sons, Leviticus chapter 10, who dared to offer up to God on his altar an offering that he did not command of them. I'm sure what they did when they offered up to God that that offering was from the heart, out of a place of sincerity. But it was not what God commanded them to offer in worship. They may have been zealous, but they detached their worship from the truth of God's Word. And so when I say that zealous worship detached from the truth of the Word of God is deadly, that is not, that is not hyperbole. Read Leviticus 10. Read what happened to Aaron's sons. But beloved, also understand, if, if we do and say and sing all the right things in worship and our hearts are not engaged, then what are we left with? We are left with cold, dead orthodoxy. We're left with mere formalism. That was Israel's problem in the Old Testament so many times. And this is why King David, Psalm 51, he says to the Lord, you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now that's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Because who ordained the sacrifices and the burnt offerings in worship? God did. Offering them up would have been in accordance with the truth, in accordance with God's Word. But without the Spirit, without the heart involved in those acts of worship, those sacrifices mean nothing to God. And King David knew it. That's why David would go on to say in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Their beloved is the spiritual side of true worship. David knew that both mattered. The form mattered. The sacrifices, according to how God commanded them to be done, it mattered, but so did his heart before God. And he goes on to say that when he humbles himself, when he would humble himself in his heart, when he would approach God with the right spirit, then, David says, you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Beloved, worship must be done in accordance to the very nature of God. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Heart, soul, strength, mind must be engaged in worshiping the God who is spirit, but it must be done according to the standard, the ultimate standard of truth, the word of God.
Those are the first two things that it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Thirdly, lastly, beloved, to worship the God who is spirit in spirit and in truth means that worship is a Trinitarian act. Now, admittedly, there are some people who might accuse me of maybe stretching a little bit on this or over-spiritualizing on this last point, but I really don't believe that I am. I'll let you consider what I'm saying. If you feel like I'm making a stretch, then you can discern that for yourself, and I'm sure you will probably let me know. But when Jesus says in John 4 that God is spirit, he's clearly talking about God the Father. This is why he says just before that, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so when he says God is spirit, and those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth, I think it is very right to say that Jesus, again, is giving us a Trinitarian pattern for worship. We come to God the Father in, uh, and worship him in spirit. We might say we worship him by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, and we worship Him in truth, meaning we worship Him in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who He Himself declared in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want us to understand this, beloved. Whether I'm over-spiritualizing this verse or not, the principle itself is still absolutely true. There is one reason why we can come together and worship the Father. There is one reason alone. And that is because the truth, Jesus Christ, opened up the way for us. Jesus Christ is the one who through His life, His death, His resurrection, has reconciled us to the Holy God. Without that reconciliation, our worship would never be pleasing to the Father. Jesus Christ is the one who through His blood cleansed us and made us holy so that when we go to the Father in worship, He receives our frail, weak, sinful attempts at glorifying Him and He receives it as a pleasing aroma of praise. And more than that, beloved, Jesus Christ is the one who, as Hebrews 8 says, is our minister in the high places. That Greek word for minister, it is where we get the English word liturgist from. What is a liturgist? A liturgist is someone who leads, who frames the liturgy, the, the worship of the people. And that means that Jesus Christ, who is actually in heaven right now, He is there leading, framing our worship and presenting it to the Father as true spiritual worship. When we worship the Father, we are very much so worshiping Him in truth because we are worshiping Him in the name of Jesus Christ. And who is it then, we might ask? Who is it who has united us to Jesus Christ? Who is it who has taken away our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh so that we even have a desire to worship God? Who is it who indwells us and gives us the, 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 the emotional capability, the, the desire 
to offer up to God glory and worship and praise and adoration? Who is it who has regenerated us? Given us the gift of repentance and faith needed to come to the Son? Who is it who glorifies Christ in our own hearts so that we have the stirrings and the desires to worship God? It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this work. And so we worship God the Father who is Spirit, a glorious, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, unmovable Spirit. We worship God the Spirit in Spirit with our hearts, with the core of who we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we worship God our Father in truth, according to His Word, according to His revealed will as it is found in the pages of our Bibles, and in the name of the Word incarnate, the living truth, Jesus Christ, God the Father receives our worship as being spiritual and true. God is Spirit, beloved. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. May the Holy Spirit enable us more and more in our private worship, in our family worship, in our gathered worship together. May the Spirit enable us to truly worship God in spirit and in truth.